Today's episode of the Film Stage Show is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showcasing exceptional films from around the globe. For a free 30-day trial subscription, go to mubi.com slash filmstage. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a brand new episode of the Film Stage Show, the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. As always, I'm your host, Brian J. Rowan. With me today, we have Robin Barr. Hey. Hey. All right. I was expecting more, but that's fine. Bill Graham. Everybody open to Book of Job. (laughs) (laughs) And with us today uh, for a classic episode where we're going to be talking about Martin Scorsese's 1991 remake of Cape Fear, it's Peter Avellino. Hello. Hello, Peter. How are you doing today? Doing very well, thank you. Awesome. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you for joining us. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself uh, to our listening audience? My name is Peter Abellino. I live in Los Angeles. I write a film blog by the name of Mr. Peel's Sardine Liqueur. If I had known some years back that I would be discussing it on a podcast, I probably would have given it a different name, but that's the name and I'm stuck with it. And it, the, the, the blog mostly consists of long, sometimes intensely personal essays about all different sorts of films. Cape Fear is one that I wrote about a number of years back, and I've written about many, many other films through the years. Well, deeply, intensely personal takes on movies is what we specialize in here. So I think you're going to fit in great. And also, don't don't be hard on your blog name. Friggin' Paul Thomas Anderson is about to release a film called Licorice Pizza. This is true. Yeah. It looks great. Um, You're on on the damn cutting edge of the weird food names. Okay. Okay. (laughs) So I'm here to inspire people. Um, Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) And uh, again, we are here today to talk about Cape Fear, uh, Martin Scorsese's 1991 film, uh, which stars, actually, this is a hugely stacked cast that I was uh, I was not expecting. Robert De Niro, Nick Nolte, Jessica Lange, uh, Juliette Lewis, you got Robert Mitchum and Gregory Peck showing up in there, Ileana Douglas, Fred Thompson, before <laughs> he became like a crazy political kind of guy, uh, Joe Don Baker, it's awesome. <laughs> So excited to talk about this with all of you. Uh, before we get into that, though, the usual stuff up front, you can follow us on Twitter at Film Stage Show, Facebook, the Film Stage Show. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a comment and rating. You can email us, podcastfilmstage.com. And of course, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash filmstageshow to uh, give us some money and become part of our Slack channel and get first crack at all of our awesome movie-related raffles. Again, that is uh, patreon.com slash show. And in case you all were wondering, yes, Ted Lasso Discourse has finally hit the slack. Mm. <laughs> Robin. I hate watching that show at this point. Yeah, I don't know that I'm uh, enjoying it anymore. But I don't, I don't want to get us sucked into the discourse of, uh, mm-hmm. of Ted Lasso. So let's, uh, we'll move on. I'll stay quiet. I know if you have an opinion, please do shout it out. Cause I'm, I, I, I watched this, the first season in a, in a run, you know, oh, kind of right okay. before so the second season came out. It. Yeah, I know. And, uh, <laughs> and it, you know, I heard universally good things and I really loved it. And then the second season happened and it's just been like a decline in my eyes. But so Peter, Agreed. did you have, did you have feelings? I, I, I feel like the direction the show has been going in. Uh, I don't know. It feels like it's reflecting certain things about reality right now. And it feels right. And I feel, I, I might be in the minority on this. Interesting. Um, 
you know, I I had a long I ran into somebody I knew yesterday and we had this conversation about uh, the way things are for us and for everyone. And he made this comment about, you know, it feels like everyone is just treading water right now. And then I go home and I watch this Ted Lasso episode, which is surprisingly long and it's entirely set at a funeral. And well, not entirely, but it, it felt like an extension of the conversation. I had. And maybe that part of it worked for me. That almost feels like you're saying that the show itself is treading water. No, 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 no. Okay. He didn't mean, no, 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 not. If you feel that way about the show, that's okay. But no, this person I ran into was referring to life and people he knows in the world. Right okay. Now. I got not you. All right. I don't know what this person thinks about Ted Lasso, but. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, no, interesting. Well, perhaps uh, if we, we finish the season, uh, Bill and, and Robin and I can just have like a 15 minute moment where we just air our feelings about Ted Lasso and then promise never to talk about it again. Okay. But anyway, um, so that's that. Uh, before we get into our feature episode, though, uh, here about Cape Fear, I want to remind everyone that we were brought to you by MUBI, again, the curated streaming service that showcases exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, MUBI's absolutely fantabulous curators premiere a brand new film, whether it's a Thomas classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece. It's guaranteed to be either be a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before, and there will always be something new to discover. Again, as I said, with, with MUBI, every film is hand-selected. So you'll never uh, fall into the trap that I did where I went on uh, Hulu and wanted to watch a movie and instead ended up watching The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. That's just like eight to ten hours of my life that I did away with and I don't know why. Um, And then I fell down a rabbit hole of other paranormal pseudo documentaries. So pray for my soul. If I had just gone on movie, none of that would have happened to me. They've got some really interesting stuff. I wanted to hit y'all up with this thing this week features a surreal stop-motion short and it's got the world's greatest name it's scenes with beans (laughs) in this ingenious stop-motion short humble beans come alive populating their own planet made from everyday household objects as fish tins become race cars and candy boxes turn into skyscrapers this delightfully bean-centric microcosm doubles as a whimsical parody of space obsessed 1970s culture so that yeah, sounds that fun. sounds awesome. Um, it's part of their special fables, folklore, futurism, visions, vision, <laughs> visions, visionary Hungarian animators. So that's the kind of friggin' awesome shit that you can get by checking out Mubi. And again, you can get a free 30-day trial subscription by going to mubi.com slash filmstage. So that's that. Now we can get into our feature review of Cape Fear. Woo! Yeah. Yeah. Um, this movie, again, released in 1991, uh, is a remake from Martin Scorsese, and it stars everyone who I mentioned previously. I will just once again mention Jessica Lang, Juliette Lewis, Robert De Niro, and Nick Nolte as the four leads. And, um, yeah, we're super excited to talk about this film, uh, here on its, you know, sort of 30th anniversary, not exact, but to the year, you know, so give us some slack. And yeah. Here is the trailer. Oh, I just want to say up front before people think that I didn't watch the trailer. I know the trailer begins with like nothing but smooth jazz. I don't care. I'm going to make you all listen to it. I 
This town is so very nice and everything is just so very, very nice. What? Somebody's out there. What's your connection with this fella? I was his lawyer. All right, that is a good old-fashioned early 90s trailer, if I ever did see one. (laughs) Super excited to talk about this movie. Um, I'm going to read the IMDb summary, because that is a new favorite thing of mine to do. A convicted rapist released from prison after serving a 14-year sentence stalks the family of the lawyer who originally defended him. Unfortunately, that is a boring IMDb description, because it is completely accurate to the movie. Um, that is nothing about the quality of the movie, but just what I was looking forward to from the INBB description is always madness. But so that's the movie we're talking about. Um, because this is a classic review, listeners, I remind you that there will be no spoiler section. So up front, we may spoil this film. So if you haven't seen it before and you're still somehow precious about spoilers, go away. Uh, other than that, let's jump right in. We begin with our guest, Peter. Uh, what is your history with, uh, with, uh, Cape Fear? And, uh, what did you think of it this most recent time watching it? Um, well, I saw Cape Fear opening night. Um, I saw it in New York at, I can never remember which one is the baronet and which one is the coronet, but I saw it at one of them. Um, and basically my recollection is that this was November 91. I was working, um, as an intern at CNN showbiz today. So I was paying a lot of attention to everything that was going on in movies and all that stuff at the time. I remember that the fall of 91 was a pretty dry period for films. There were, there were some good movies. There was My Own Private Idaho, The Fisher King, a lot of flops, a lot of bad movies. And it felt like people were excited about Cape Fear. There was, a, there was this feeling in the air opening nights. It was Scorsese. It was just over a year after Goodfellas first opened and Goodfellas seemed to play forever anyway. And all of a sudden here was Cape Fear coming out and people were really energized by it. And I remember going with a friend of mine to see it that opening night. I even remember that after the movie, we went to, um, I think it was on 57th street, uh, planet Hollywood, which had just opened the very first ever planet Hollywood had just opened a couple of weeks earlier and we went and had dinner and i remember sitting there in the restaurant and at one point seeing lou wasserman and sid scheinberg the heads of universal just walk through um so that is a period of my life that remains pretty vivid and obviously i loved the film at the time it's not one of the scorsese films that i revisit the most i'll be totally honest um Let me put it this way. I'm a Generation X heterosexual Italian Jew from New York. So if you wanted to guess at what are the Scorsese films I return to the most, you would probably be right. (laughs) Is your Scorsese movie uh, Goodfellas? That's one of them. Okay. I was going to say After Hours. After Hours is probably the first Scorsese film I ever saw in the theater. Um... After Hours would be one of them, too. I saw some of Goodfellas being shot one day in New Rochelle back in 1989. What? Um, Goodfellas is definitely a movie of mine. Very much so. Yeah. 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 My, my parents I, are, are from Queens, so I feel like, uh, you know, they probably saw exactly. like most of Goodfellas getting shot as well. 
I'm no, from I, Long Island in a Jutalian relationship. So that is also one of my favorite movies. They, they shot a little bit of Goodfellas around where Lorraine Bracco's house is supposed to be in the movie, which I think in the movie is supposed to be like the five towns, but they shot this stuff in New Rochelle, right mm-hmm. near where I grew up in Scarsdale. So I saw Ray Liotta pick her up at the uh, at that phone booth where she's sobbing. And oh, then, yeah. And the, um, her house was actually right near there. I sadly didn't see the scene where he beats the crap out of the guy. Damn it. That's I what him. I was going to ask you. I was like, please tell I, me you got to see the scene where he just pistol whips some motherfucker like for five minutes. I wish I saw things like him dropping her off and a couple of other little bits, but I did not see that. I wish I wish. But I was on for one glorious day. I was on the set of Goodfellas. Yeah. Nice. But um, what were we saying? Oh, yeah. Good. Yeah. Goodfellas is one of my movies. And After Hours is one of my movies. And The King of Comedy is one of my movies. And Casino is one of my movies. And obviously, there are others that I've seen multiple times. And I've seen Cape Fear multiple times. But it's it's a little bit further down the list. But I still respect it. And I look at it as this sort of, you know, he's trying to make a commercial movie while not totally giving up the sort of movie he wants to make. Mm-hmm. He's trying to find his way through it. He's he's trying to make an old-fashioned thriller. I look at some of those scenes, those domestic scenes, and it feels like I'm watching a movie made in the 50s, like it's this mashup of Manelli and Cirque and Nicholas Ray or something like that. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, obviously the Hitchcockian elements with the Bernard Herrmann score. And it wants to be a big movie, even when it's just two people in a scene there's i think it was the last waltz that has the card at the top this film should be played loud cape fear could very easily have that card i think Um, so i i i like cape fear very much and watching it the other night i still i still do and my feelings that i had when i wrote the piece of my blog some years back haven't really changed that it's like it's almost this struggle of trying to figure out how to make this old fashioned studio thriller. Um, I could even go, I, I wrote about this, but if you look at the, it's not on the video release, I don't think, but if you look at the 35 millimeter prints at the very, very, it, wait, let me go back. Um, the credits like have that sort of swamp sounds as the end credits roll. Yeah. And then there are very yeah. weird sounds as the MPA logo comes on and all that stuff. And then we hear this distant echo of what sounds like people on a roller coaster. And in 35 millimeter prints, that's when the When in Hollywood Visit Universal Studios card came on. And it feels like he's trying to make a movie <laughs> for that in some ways, while yeah. still making a Martin Scorsese film about loss and about grief and about people trying to figure out how to still live with each other after they betrayed each other. That's awesome. <laughs> that is okay, thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, let's see. Robin Barr, what about yourself? What did you think of Cape Fear? And had you seen it before? What are What is your background with this movie? Yeah, I, I had seen Cape Fear before. Um, I went through a Scorsese kind of moment a few years after college. And so I saw it about 10 years ago, I would say. And I, I suppose I really liked it because I gave it a three and a half star out of four rating. Um and I was surprised because I don't have the most fond memories of it, or I just maybe I didn't remember it that well, but I was like, oh, eh. And then I was like, well, I really clearly enjoyed it. Um, so we, my husband and I rewatched it last night and we actually had watched the Cape Fear 
1962 version on Friday. Um, so it was really interesting to see them back to back so closely. And I have to say, like, after having seen the original uh, version with Robert Mitchum as Max Cady, uh, I'm going to have to, I don't know. I, I don't even want to say if one is better than the other, but I think my enjoyment of the first one kind of drew some of some of that momentum toward it away from the the remake um, or the reboot. So I actually downgraded my rating from three and a half stars to three out of four, which is still good. It's still, you know, like, right. Because again, it is out of four. (laughs) It is out of four specifically. It is out of four. um, Cause I grew up in the New York post and they always rated out of four. So uh, yeah, no, I, I still really enjoy the movie, but I think the restraint of the first film kind of highlighted to me that Cape Fear 1991 is a little soap operatic for me, or it was just, it's so over the top. Like De Niro is just so on screen. And I guess maybe I just preferred <laughs> like Robert Mitchum, who that's is such a both, great thing to say. <laughs> he is. He just can't help himself. Like Mitchum is both freakier and sexier. So it makes it worse. Um, but I do like that the second film ha- provides the female characters a lot more agency personality and character um so again this isn't the point of this is not to compare them both but i think now that i have the the background i'm def- i'm a little more inclined towards the first one i suppose but the second one is just so um it is so rich in its characterizations in a way that you know a quick 1962 thriller would never have been um, I'm thinking of like the Ileana Douglas character. I'm thinking of the shades, the moral shades to Nick Nolte, um, who is not Gregory Peck, would never be Gregory Peck, could never be Gregory Peck. And that's OK, uh, because he is playing a different version of the character that's not quite so uh, upstanding, so to speak. And Jessica Lang, you know, she's interesting because I feel like she was playing this character drunk. And I know the character is not an alcoholic. There's no like, there's nothing, you know, there's no imbibing in this movie, but there's something really loose about her performance that I couldn't really, couldn't really figure it out. Um, And Juliette Lewis actually got an Oscar nomination for this movie. But now that I have seen her version of it, which is, I mean, horny as hell compared to Mm -hmm. um, the, the, young woman and i forget her name in the 1962 that character who is like i mean plays a 15 year old but could have easily been 12 years old uh, if anybody has seen the first the original movie like that character is was fascinating to me and so juliet lewis playing her as a little more of like a 90s like with it chick whatever <laughs> uh it it just it was so interesting to see the comparison like how I don't know, like this idea that, you know, what, like a movie where you could never say the word rape because it was 1962 versus a 1991 movie where rape is used as a, as like a sexualizing device is, it was very fascinating to me. So I think they both work as a thriller. I think I just maybe prefer the subtleness, uh, the subtleties of the first one. Um, I really just could not get into De Niro in this role, even though this is specifically one of his most visceral 
probably like some of the most uh, acclaimed performances of his career. Like when they do an obit for De Niro, Max Cady will be among his most memorable. And yet I just thought it was a little too much for me. All that like the, oh God, what was it? The, um, the, the snake charming or like there's a word for it. I'm just forgetting the, uh, when you speak in tongues, when he does that, oh, he's like, yeah. oh, but, oh, but, oh, but, oh, but, like, shut the fuck up. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> so that kind of really kind of took it away from me, but I don't know. I'm curious. Interesting. Cause I actually, like. I not to tip my hand as to my thoughts, but I, I liked that inclusion of that. I thought that like we learned we, without saying too much right now, we learn a lot about Max Cady through what he does. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how it jives with what he has told us about himself. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Bill Graham, what about yourself? Thoughts on Cape Fear? Have you seen it before? And uh, also you were the champion of this movie in our, in our survey, which I won handily. Um, why did you choose this for that? Uh, I chose that or chose this for that because I had never seen it before. Oh, so, so you just want is- an excuse to. Uh, this was on my list of things to see down the line. And, uh, you know, I thought the whole point of the contest was to choose films that we hadn't seen. Oh, you were a fool. So that we could talk <laughs> about it um, on the podcast. And so that's why I chose this. So, uh, you know, I found that out after the fact when you obviously chose Tree of Life. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? And Robin chose, hey, doing? first of all, don't don't leave me alone up there. Robin chose my girl and she had totally seen that before. Yeah, but I didn't know Robin had seen that. I know you had seen Tree of Life, like <laughs> you know. So uh, that was that was my first clue that I I had fucked up on that. Um, but that's fine. Uh, we're doing this now, so that's why we're watching it. And uh, yeah, um, so I hadn't seen it. Uh, I had heard this is kind of in. <laughs> I guess I had heard that De Niro, this was like one of his last real big like uh, roles that people think he wasn't sleeping in, right? Um, and he's gained that reputation, as have like a lot of his uh, actors of, of his generation. Um, the older they get, the more movies they are in, and the more it's just like, okay, you know, um, which is okay you know i mean i can't i can't expect everything you know heat level stuff out of everybody all the time so that's fine um and so yeah i hadn't uh read or seen too much else besides that um i knew it was a thriller that was it uh so watching it today i was uh i was pretty impressed with it but i do have i think it has a very weird third act where at the end they're in they're kind of bunkered in a house for the last 30 minutes and actually it's not the last 30 or it's they they don't stay inside that house and so like it was so weird to kind of take a runtime kind of measurement because I had to uh, get some food uh, because I'm not eating on the podcast right now. <laughs> so um, 
when I was getting some food, I was like, holy shit, he's inside the house. He's already killed like the private eye and there's still 30 minutes left in this movie. And so I was just like, wow, where the hell is this thing going to go? And it goes to this giant set piece on a river, which I guess maybe, um, you know, Obviously, Cape Fear, that's the name of uh, the location where, you know, this river is or whatever, this cape, I guess. Um, and so I was pretty shocked and surprised that that was kind of its its third act twist um, in a way. So uh, ultimately, I was kind of pleasantly surprised, um, even though I feel like it kind of has a fake out towards the end about its you know, what is going to be the final set piece and location and everything like that. So, uh, pleasantly surprised. Uh, Nick Nolte looks very, very different from what he does, you know, nowadays, what he's kind of known for. So, uh, also interesting to see him. And then, you know, the fact that Gregory Peck returns for, for this film is, uh, interesting. And I guess that says enough of, the power of Martin Scorsese, or maybe he would have just signed up for this regardless. You never know. Yeah. And Mitchum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, I had never seen this, this before. Film... Oh, I'm sorry. Go, sorry ahead. go ahead. No, 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 no please. Well, I was just going to mention that this film, it, it, it feels like remakes that followed this film over the years and decades took a lot in the sense of, bringing back characters from original films. I mean, the Body Snatchers remake where Kevin McCarthy did a cameo, it happened like 10 years earlier or mm-hmm. more. But it feels like with this film, it really became like, this is one of the things you have to do. Right, 100%. You have to pay, you have to pay tribute to the, the TV show or the movie or whatever it was by giving them a cameo where they sort of nod their head and say, you're doing good work, go for it. <laughs> and um, it feels like this movie was a part of that. Mitchum is really the, the one who gets a real role out of it. But the peck, the peck scene is nice. And Martin Balsam's in there, too, which is nice. I like the yeah. way Martin Balsam says Christian Harmony. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to mention he's, that. He's the judge. He's the judge, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I um, I really li- I like that, but it is one of those things where I was like, I you know, uh, interesting. Like this is definitely a thing that's happened and like has continued to happen. So I had that thought. I was like, is this the one that like really made mm-hmm. this the thing you had to do? You know, it's like we're remaking X movie. It's like, all right, well, just make sure that you call up what's his face and get a two day roll out of him, so you know we can we have that on our laurel when people try to like yell at us about remaking it. Yeah, like anything, there's probably an earlier example other than Kevin McCarthy, but this really feels like the one where it was almost like part of how the movie was being sold, that Mm -hmm. it is this tribute to this other movie. And the Gregory Peck, which does feel like they're not just nodding to his part in the original, but it feels like this sort of subversion of To Kill a Mockingbird also, obviously, Mm -hmm. at the same time. So Very much so. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would almost say it almost feels a little broad in that sense, but it's... It's a cute scene. Yeah, no, it's very cute. It's nice. I mean, the movie is a lot. I think. Oh yes. (laughs) (laughs) No, really. (laughs) Yeah. Can someone explain to me the negative moments? Like, uh, am I am I describing that correctly? Where it looks like they're doing a oh, like photo negative. Yeah, the photo negative. Yes, yes. 
I cannot. Like, no. I mean, it's a it's a stylistic touch. It usually means that it almost seems it's like a it's stylistic a stylistic. Do you mean like when Jessica Lang is doing that? That's happening with Jessica Lang, like after they've made love, that sort of thing. Yeah, and they they do it again. I think toward the end of the film, and I'm can't I can't remember if it was there's like a, the... there's a moment where Nick Nolte believes that he sees Max Cady in his room, and it's it's a right. photo negative. I, and I think it yes. starts on a photo negative on Juliette Lewis's eye. Mm-hmm. Yes. So yeah. for me, it it always yeah. felt like it was coming in. It was signifying like a character leaving their not their mind, Innocence? but like you know, just like it, moving outside of the realm of like literal immediate thought. You know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would go with that. Yeah. It just yeah, sort I mean, of I, reminded I, me of like playing with Photoshop when I was thirteen. Mm-hmm. I would yeah. just be like, "Oh, I'm so artistic." It, it is- it is the early nineties, you know, um, CGI isn't really like a big, big thing at this point. So I'm sure, and you see this throughout a lot of filmmakers kind of careers where they just kind of become fascinated with like one thing and they're just like, all right, this is the movie. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna fucking do some negatives. I don't know. Why not? And so, I don't know. I mean, it, I imagine that there was some kind of conversation between, you know, cinematographer Freddie Francis and and uh, Martin Scorsese about that. But uh, maybe Francis brought it. Maybe Scorsese brought it. You never know. Yeah, I mean, I would think any answer you have about what is happening, like in terms of the Jessica Lange scene. I mean, anything you could say would probably be the right answer. She is, you know, sort of removing herself from her real life and she feels separate from her husband and her daughter and all this stuff. Maybe, maybe not, but I, it, and, and yes, like you said, it is this very stylistic touch in a movie filled with stylistic touches where it really does feel pre-CGI. It's still two years before Jurassic Park and all this stuff. It, a lot of the, the, the there's sort of mat shots of the house and the, the boat at the end, it feels very photochemical in that sense mm-hmm. that the CGI hasn't taken over. And if the movie had been made a few years later, it would have been substantially different in that sense, I think. Yeah, and I think that Martin Scorsese is is a is a, a director who loves to, to mess with stuff like that. I mean, like... yes. You know, just just I mean, he's never met a simple genre film that he couldn't inject some weirdness into in a visual way. Like, think about think about how many people walked into Gangs of New York and were probably completely thrown by the way that he shot and Screenmaker edited the um the the and, and the way that it was scored. The the opening fight scene between the the natives and the dead rabbits. I mean, like that thing is so it's so weird. It's so strange. And it's gorgeous, but like anyone who's expecting Braveheart in the, the the five points was like obviously immediately alienated, you know. So yeah. like this is this is what he does. I mean, similarly, I just watched uh, I just watched the the movie with the crazy people. That doesn't help when it's a Scorsese film. Shutter, Shutter Island, Island. Um, and that's another one where he he does a lot of stuff. You know, like the the lights changing. You know, helps to illuminate not just Teddy Daniels's migraines and his mental state, but just like, you know, the the sensation of discovery and uncertainty, you know, and that is mixed with other actual CGI, you know, which he uses judiciously in that movie. But yeah, Martin Scorsese, he, he... I think this is a pretentious way to say it, and I swear to God, I don't care. Um, he is a man who is in love with cinema and what cinema can do, and he will never shoot something... 
totally documentary like if he can get away with not doing it that way right right and yet at the same time compared with shutter island i feel like shutter island willingly is able to go off on all sorts of different tangents Mm -hmm. whereas cape fear seems deliberately it wants to be in its plotting somewhat more traditional because every scene of Cape Fear is basically Mac, uh, Nick Nolte basically being like, what are we going to do about Max Katie? That's the whole movie. <laughs> and, and, it, yeah. and it's meant to be that way to, to the point where, you know, the climax is a traditional final confrontation of a thriller. So he's, yeah. it's not like Scorsese, as much as there are all these stylistic touches and other things in the movie. It's not trying to totally subvert things like say, New York, New York, where you go in expecting a traditional musical and you're confronted with this other thing. (laughs) You could say a lot of things about that. You don't like the stylistics in Cape Fear, but it is trying to be that sort of traditional thriller in some ways. 100%. Yeah. And uh, just, just I know we've already seemingly moved past it, but I do want to just say up front uh, how I felt yeah, about this movie. Yeah, what are your thoughts? Um, go, go ahead, go ahead. I have a problem, and that problem is The Simpsons, <laughs> Season 5, mm-hmm. Episode 2, Cape Fear with an E at the end of it. Um, I, I grew up as a child watching The Simpsons, just nonstop. There's not a moment of my life that I could not underscore with part, of, like a, a reference to golden era simpsons you know season one through nine basically which is crazy because that's less than one third of the entire run of the show but anyway um and so i know that that episode was a riff on cape fear obviously um you know there's a reason that the simpsons moved to terror lake um but i i don't think i realized how much it was a riff on cape fear like it the music is the same and it's bad when i'm i like i'm watching this movie and i'm laughing because the music hits and i'm just like oh my god sideshow bob did this exact same thing and this is the music they did when he was like writing the notes with his like blood and then passed out and snake has the immortal line use a pen sideshow bob um (laughs) so that's like an issue that I had to get over because I just, it's, it's almost like I had a friend who once uh, never saw a James Bond film. And when he started watching one of them, he's like, Oh, so this is just like serious Austin powers. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that when you see the spoof before you see the actual thing, it can be hard to get into it. Um, So there was a part where I was like, Okay, when are they gonna get? When are they gonna get to the houseboat? Because I need to see what happens on this houseboat. Because like I know what happens to the houseboat on the Simpsons, and I really highly doubt that Max Katie is gonna sing the entire score for the HMS Pinafore. As much as I would one hundred percent love to see that happen, um, so I did have to get over that, and I did, and I I really I did enjoy this movie. I think I enjoyed it though as a curiosity, mm-hmm. more than um more than just like an actual film. And part of that is because again, the alienation of having seen the Simpsons episode like 40 times um, made it difficult to escape. But also like this is Scorsese, like coming off of a run of some of his greatest films that are like outside of what you would expect from a Hollywood studio. And then he comes and he produces, uh, well, you know, directs, but you know, I'm sure he was also producer. What I meant to say is then he goes and makes this movie which is just, it's a little, it's a little crazy. Like this came like right after Goodfellas, like literally released the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, The Last Temptation of Christ, 
I mean, it's it, and then you get this, and it's like, oh right, this this like the opening credits feel like a '90s thriller, which is not what I was expecting. I was like, ooh, Martin Scorsese, let's get weird with it. And then I was kind of shocked that he seemed to have been attempting to go a little mainstream. Um, but then, of I mean, course, there's a lot of weirdness in this. Well, that's the thing is like then, of course, you start to watch it, and you're like, no, there is a lot of weirdness in it. It's kind of like The Departed, like. I feel like a lot of people went and saw The Departed who'd never seen a Martin Scorsese film before because it's it's Matt Damon and it's you know uh, that that one it's uh, that was about to say it's Jack Nicholson it's it's uh, the President Bartlett whose name I can't remember uh, Martin Sheen you and, forgot um, Leo Jesus <laughs> I forgot Leo yeah well Leonardo DiCaprio's in there uh, I thought you meant Leo from the West Wing and I was like uh, that's not <laughs> oh, the same guy um, all right sick. It's got James Badge Dale in it, um, which is really oh, the boy. biggest draw of that. Those movie. are a sentence nobody has said in their life. I'm sorry. Uh, have you, you're right. You're new to this podcast, technically. Uh, James Badge Dale is goat, and I will brook no quarrel. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, but I remember going and seeing that movie with a bunch of people, and a, a whole lot of them were like, "What is fucking happening to this movie?" Like the music cuts out so hardcore when that, you know crippled old lady with a cigarette answers the door and says billy and I'm like this is scorsese man he's a freaking punk rock you know just all over the place doesn't give a fuck he has those weird insert shots that happen all of a sudden and like yeah it's yeah. gonna get it's gonna yeah. get crazy it's gonna yeah. it's it's gonna looney tunes end with a circle darkening around a rat like we're, this rules this is what we're doing here <laughs> And um and so yeah it was interesting to see like you know cuz that is that kind of that kind of concept you know it's like I'm going to make what should be a pretty basic thriller but I'm going to I'm going to Scorsese it up a notch and this is him doing that in this movie and it works really well I I really quite enjoyed it I you know it's funny that like even though I knew it's Scorsese there's still shit that he can do that shocks me like uh seeing someone's cheek get fucking bitten off yeah. You know, like that's I wasn't expecting that. Who would expect that? Like there's well, a reason. I, I wonder There's a I reason that my mother once called Scorsese Tyson. a sick puppy even though she loves him, but I wonder what time that Tyson fight happened. Let me, let that me was see. later. That was like 96. <laughs> yeah, it was and that was an ear. Well, I know, still, but that's that's a, that's a visceral yeah. thing. But oh, okay, so yeah, were so you, that happened in 96. Yeah. Yeah. Man, Robin just yeah. called it. Yeah, because I remember it happening. My dad was watching. Well, I remember it. it I, I remember it happening too, but I don't know what year it was. I don't even know the year that Clinton had sexually exploited Monica Lewinsky. You know, that's just a thing that happened in my childhood that I'm aware of. I mean, that was around '96 as well. Man, what the hell was 96. in the water? <laughs> what What were we as a people doing then? I don't know. Anyway. Enjoying no, our great that, economy. That, that was- Basically, yeah, <laughs> that, yeah. That was that was a crazy ass scene. Yeah, I was not expecting that. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, and that's the kind of thing is like you're watching this movie, and and it it is it it feels safe in a way, and then something like that happens, and you're like, right, right, right. Yeah, no, there is real menace and terror here. Like this is, mm-hmm. you know, it's not him laughing too loud at problem child and menacingly hanging out in a convertible. Like this is. There's some real, there's some real hardcore shit happening here, and like that, you know. We should talk about the problem child scene because it's a glorious scene. I still have never fully understood why Nick Nolte took his wife and daughter to see Problem Child. <laughs> I, I love the scene. Um, 
Um, Problem Child was co-written by my friend Larry Karzus. He's a great guy. I think he loves that it's in the movie. And uh, um, it, I just... I just I just feel like a moment needs to be spent on that because it's a glorious moment of De Niro laughing at Problem Child. And it feels like one of those elements of the movie that really does survive in terms of being a meme on Twitter or whatever about people <laughs> laughing at movies or what, what have you. This um, is I just wanted to mention it. I feel I terrible because I. Again, I just I only had The Simpsons walking into this. And there, if you had asked me, like, what are some of the things from The Simpsons that you think were heightened? You know, like, what's the thing you don't think happened in Cape Fear? I would have thought obnoxiously smoking a cigar and laughing too loud at a movie would have been one of them. I also would have thought uh, strapped to the bottom of a car until he gets to the lake <laughs> would have been one. <laughs> Nick and I were just like, what the fuck are we watching? <laughs> like, is well, he Spider-Man? Like, yeah, well, it, it was so funny because Erica walked in right around that sequence and she was just like, has he been there since the house? And I was like, I fucking guess so. And then, you know, you see him undo his belt and he looks he looks pretty fucking rough. And but so that's, I was like, the, okay, that's kind of right, what fine, rules about fair. it. Is well, yeah, no, like it, it makes sense. <laughs> it makes sense that, like, okay, I guess, I guess, if you're gonna hitch a ride to the bottom of a car, like, I guess you should probably use like a belt or something. I don't know how transmissions work in a four wheel drive Jeep, but that seems like that's a bad idea to to hitch your you know belt around anything that I don't know. It just seems like exhaust is hot. I don't know what he's <laughs> what he's holding on to. What if uh, dad decides human. to ride through a cactus patch? <laughs> like he you survives know, he getting his... lit up. Like he apparently can do anything. He's That's, a mutant well, from X-Men. I do I do yeah. love how how unstoppable he is. It is it is, it is like white collar terminator. <laughs> and I kind of like it. Like he, he is, he, he has, this is clearly a man. I mean, it's kind of like, um, old boy in that way. It's like, this is clearly a man yes. who for 14 years existed in a state where the only thing getting him through was plotting the shit that he was going to do. And I, I think I, it's like if the, it's like if the I, main I character of taxi wrong, driver though. hadn't attached himself to fucking murdering a politician and instead was like, I'm going to get back that one lawyer. I mean, it, it I know this is this is um, maybe pedantic, but he didn't spend 14 years trying to figure out how to get back to him. He he spent like, you know, he he notes himself. He's like, I learned how to read, and then I learned, you know, uh, some some other. Yeah, I guess social studies or whatever. And then I learned the fucking law. So I'm sure he didn't realize that he had been done dirty by his own uh, attorney until probably like the last five years of his sentence. And then then he was pretty pissed off at that point. Can we talk (laughs) about the done dirty thing? Because this seems something that actually truly betrays that this movie is 30 years old, which is that it is a betrayal <laughs> no not a betrayal that that using the defense that the 16 year old girl was a little slut will mm-hmm. negate a brutal rape okay and that but here's like here's the uh, thing is that i think that the movie even at this time knows that that's a stupid defense and knows that mm-hmm. that is not something that should have come into it but that other people would use it 
And I think that what makes this movie, what helped me to get beyond the Simpsons of it all was the level to which this movie was mired in its own, like, gray, black and white swirl of morality. You know, like, this movie fucking 100% understands that that is a shitty defense, but it also knows that it is an effective defense, and it knows that Max Cady would see it being an effective defense because he doesn't think there's anything wrong with what he did, clearly. Um, And it knows that that uh, Nick Nolte's character would know that it's a shitty thing to do and would probably have done it if he didn't know that his guy was... Like, he is right. Like, you are supposed to jealously defend your client in any way you can. I mean, we watched we watched Promising Young Woman and Alfred Molina has that scene where he's jumping around looking like he smoked half a pack of cigarette every five minutes for the last six days and talks about how they would do stuff like that because that is the type of thing that a, the defense attorney would try to do because it is something that would sway a jury. And so Katie believes that it could have helped him, which it probably would have. And so technically, morally, Nick Nolte is in the right to not do it. But in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of the people who are the type of people who would say, well, you know, innocent until proven guilty and we should wait for the courts. Like they would consensus all that stuff. Yeah. 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 So like he knows that he didn't do right by the legal standard, but I mean, this is classic Scorsese all over the goddamn place. Like he knows that there are the laws of man. And then there's the laws of what you could either call it God or like the soul or just like, you know, the, the inner moral compass that we are born with. And I think that at the end, when Nick Nolte says that he's like, yeah, I know I should have done it, but you're a piece of shit. And I fucking hated you. And so I didn't do it because you didn't deserve to have what I know is a shitty trick that is effective because you are just that bad of a person. Mm-hmm. To be clear that I understand it from a plot point. Mm-hmm. I just mean that even like even bringing that up as a potential winner of a of a strategy is like very much not a post me too. Oh, I think it's still I think it still is. Are you kidding me? Like people would No. Yeah. If, if that came up in a movie now, there would be a lot more discussion of the the quote unquote problematic nature. No, because I think we're still that. we still I'm see not, conversations every day about like, oh, like I don't you know, disagree we still... with that. I don't disagree with that. I'm talking about from like the discourse point of view. Oh well everything that... sucks from the discourse point of view, Robin. <laughs> I'm just saying this is very much a movie that is clearly like a 30 year old movie because because that is not dug into more. That's I all think I'm saying. I uh, I, w- I would like to hear what Peter's going to say, but I would just before you, I, okay. I, I think that this movie is actually ahead of the curve of what you would call a 30 year old movie because of the scene with um, Ileana Douglas. And I think that's well done. I'm not yeah. disagreeing with you. And because of basically like the whole the whole end of the movie is Nick Nolte going like, yeah, I know I should have done it. I don't give a shit. Like you're a bad person. This is an effective strategy. I would I would use it, but not for you because you're like too much. But anyway, Peter, what were you going to say? I, I don't I I don't disagree with what you said. I was going to bring up the Ileana Douglas scene, but I think there are a number of things in this movie that would be addressed differently in the discourse if the movie came out now. Uh, you know, just its portrayal of the South and things like that. And I'm hardly a person to talk about the South, but 
those things are there in the movie that would be addressed in the mm-hmm. sort of red state, blue state type thing now, probably. And yes, the the whole issue with Ileana Douglas saying that she can't because I know what it's like in there. I know how I would be looked at. I know what they would say about me. And basically every, you know, Nick Nolte doesn't agree with her, but he basically nods and lets that lie at this point. And I'm sure people would have other things to say about that now at this point in time, the movie came out. But the movie is sympathetic to her, obviously. I think this is a good time to bring up Juliet Lewis's character. Yeah, because I was going to so say that's, that's yeah. the one that I feel like would be discourse heavy. Mm-hmm. Is is her, her uh, you know, Robin, this might have been what you're going to talk about, like her reaction to Katie. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Please go on, Robin. Well, no, I'm I'm agreeing with you because uh, it's. If you haven't seen the 62 version, I don't think it, I don't think Lewis's character or role pops as much, but, but I'll try to explain it. So like in, in the original, um, there's a, a young actress, I forget her name. I should really look it up. Um, who looks very, very young. I mean, she looks like she's about middle school age. I'm sure she's a little bit older. She's like probably the exact age she's supposed to be, but she's much, much shorter and much more, you know, 1950s schoolgirl, innocent looking. Um, I'm sorry, much, much shorter than Peck. So when she's standing next to her dad, I mean, she looks like a child. And so the threat of rape uh, throughout the movie, which is pretty strong. um, There's some scene where Robert Mitchum is like literally chasing her and she's staring at him. And there's like these close-ups. And I mean, that scene I would say is like the, the mid century version of like, you know, red riding hood, that sort of like fear and arousal, arousedness, if that's even a word, Um, you know, you can very much feel that in the 62 version, but it's all subtext in the Juliet Lewis version. And there's a scene where, um, well, I'll sort of put it in context. Uh, De Niro's character pretends to be her drama teacher. And so he starts grooming her over the phone, calling her up saying like, oh, you know, we're going to talk about this play. And, oh, I just, I know what's, you know, going on in your life. You know, you're like being a teenager is so hard, you know, all that bullshit. Um, and I think so, it's really interesting that he chose or that the scriptwriter chose drama teachers because, I've known people who were abused by their drama teachers. And I think there's something about, you know, getting two kids through the human condition is really interesting. It's like, oh, I know what you're going through. Like he's, he's very much sort of luring her um, into his web. And then at some point he uh, goes to the school and she follows him there. And they have this like kind of long conversation, which ends with her sucking his thumb (laughs) And then having mm-hmm. like a very deep, long kiss with him. And I'm sure, I forget how old uh, De Niro was, but I'm sure he's like at least 20 to 30 years older than Juliet Lewis in this movie. Um, and that movie, I mean, like by the end, she's just like, what the fuck just happened? He just sort of disappears. And you know that she is fully flooded. I mean, let's just say like <laughs> that with, is with very obvious. Or- <laughs> No, like in her nethers. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> oh man, good times. It is an extremely horny scene that is made 
it is made textual from the original. It, it's so interesting to see see the contrast. It and it's a what, scene that goes on for a surprisingly long. It is a oh, yeah. long that's, scene. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. A lot of the movie scenes like slam from one scene to the next as if they're cutting off heads and tails of scenes to just go boom, boom, boom. And then with mm-hmm. this one, everything just stops. Yeah. So like, yeah. Also, it has a it has a halfway point where you're like, OK, this is where like the climax of the scene is going to happen. And then it goes on for another like two or three minutes because mm-hmm. right, you like, think the, the point fuck? where she realizes it's him would be the yes. end of it and instead she's like well fucking stick around who cares <laughs> yeah it's yeah. fascinating to her it's fascinating and it's like it um this is a classic well, i could the, talk about this, this is, a lot but this is I, one of those things where they the lack of information that they give her about him is exactly why she sticks around because all she knows is that this guy is creepy he's weird and that he apparently murdered their dog and as soon as he shoes that off of her plate all of a sudden she's just like i don't remember why they were warning me to stay away from you all they they kept saying hush things right around this me, family and that's refuses it refuses to talk yeah. And they're like they're like, oh no, she's too young. She can't know this. It's like, fuck that. <laughs> like you want to let a a person know that hey, this is a a sexual predator and that he also is very fucking charming when he needs to be. Like he is <laughs> Would you think is, they would have told her that? Just be like, hey, look, all right, there's a really charming sexual predator. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, charming honestly, I mean certainly just certainly they they could tell her that he he is very conniving and very uh convincing. Like yeah, you don't, but you don't have to you tell teach him young children about sexual predators. I mean, you have to be open sure. with them about stuff like this, in my opinion. Yeah. And that's how that's how I was treated as a young person. Um, you know, pretty openly with with my family. So I I, I just thought this was like a, such a classic watching grooming happen. I mean, it was just like with fascinating, horrifying. Um, yeah, no, it's it's not great. I mean, I mean, it's it's a good movie, but it's it's also somewhat arousing, to be honest. Like, I I mean, I'm not saying like, you know. You're not I'm not saying like I was turned on watching it, but you know, if you put yourself in that character's position and you know, you're probably really not have not been noticed by guys yet, or maybe you maybe you're just sort of like in on the cusp when someone does uh put their eye on you, I mean it's still it still is intriguing. You know, I will whether say you're going to go for it or not. The the one issue that I had with 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 her casting, and it's not her fault. It's just that she hasn't changed much in like thirty years. Mm-hmm. So like, <laughs> which is great for her. Like fucking fantastic. But like, I'm watching this. And I'm like, yes, that is Juliette Lewis, the full grown woman that I've seen in many many things, playing an adult. Yeah. It's just like, you know. So I just had to keep like mentally running stuff. Like she's playing you know 15 she's playing 15 like oh right and she's playing a sophisticated 15 year old who is very much of the mtv generation right she's yeah. like the um, daughter in in face off you know it's the same thing where you see her and you're like oh what is she like 24 and it's like nope she's in high school <laughs> I, I don't know i was watching the movie the other night i was I, and it was the first time in a while i was sort of taken aback how good i thought she was 
I think she is incredibly good in this movie. Yes. And I think she's the heart of the movie, frankly. Well, the thing is she, it feels like she's really supposed to be the main character. I mean, the movie is presented as this homework assignment she's giving. Yeah. And if you told me that that kind of got bled out of the movie and that there once was more voiceover narration from her instead of just the beginning and the end, I would totally believe that. And it feels like part of the purpose of the movie is you know, it's 30 years after the original. So, you know, it's pre JFK assassination, and all this stuff. So there is no more innocence, really. But it's almost like her character is there to sort of say that there is always innocence that will be lost. And she's, that's what she's addressing at the very, very end of the film. Yeah, yeah no, I, I wish there had been more of that. Because I, I just agree. didn't give really a shit about Nick Nolte. I, I don't know. I don't think you're. I, I don't think you're wrong to want more of a feeling of that from from the point of view of her character. I don't think you're wrong about. That. I would have been good if this whole movie like had Days of Heaven style narration the whole time. <laughs> like that would have been that would have been great to me. And honestly, oh I think that I think it's an interesting point that like Nick Nolte is boring as shit in this movie. You know, he and. And I don't think Nick Nolte is usually boring in movies, um, but it almost sounds like they somehow worked the gravel out of his throat for like this one role um, mm-hmm. up until the very end. But like it is, like, I think that Sam Sam Bowden 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 how, Bedwin Bowden. 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 Okay. What? Uh, wait. Okay, I'm not gonna. Anyway, Sam, as played by Nick Nolte, <laughs> um, he. Uh, yeah, he's pretty boring. I mean, he he the his one thing is like that he had this like moral choice to make, but then he also makes all of the wrong choices. And I think it it's it's a it's a huge giant thing of like, yeah, he's just a boring man. Like it's almost to the point where it's like, why is this happening to him? It's like you know the Job like thing. It's like I don't know. God pointed at him and said that one. You know, he's he's not. It's not like this is a true chickens coming home to roost situation. You know, it's not like Scrooge where it's like he's been a miserable prick to everyone in his life. He needs these ghosts. You know, it's like if one of the characters who happened to be walking by Scrooge also got the three ghosts visiting and was like, but I haven't done much of anything like this is I don't feel like I deserve this. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's mm-hmm. driven home. I mean, like they talk a lot about the Bible in this movie. I One of my favorite scenes is actually. <laughs> They're driving to the houseboat and it's like, roses, honey, where are you going to spend eternity? <laughs> oh, like, we've gotten out of pleasant farm territory and we've entered the Bible country. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. No, I, I uh, yeah, I, I think. Um, yeah, no, I want to be clear that I think Juliette Lewis actually is a is a very good performance in this. I see that she was uh, nominated for an Academy Award alongside of. Um, Robert De Niro. And both of those make sense yeah. to me. But Robert I, De Niro lost to the other psychopath of the year, Anthony Hopkins. So. I mean, you know, it's, oh, wow. it's And fair. he's a better face biter, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because he'd been a full-grown man. You know, he fought at, in his weight class and he won. And uh, this guy, you know, handcuffed a woman and then bit her face. I mean, that's there's nothing there. It just, like, here's the thing. I guess because I had watched the 62, uh, Robert Mitchum he he's much more charming and much creepier and De Niro is just like full on. And I know they're very, they're supposed to be very different characters uh, or very different versions of the same character, but I found Mitchum both more 
freaky, more creepy, more eerie, and also more sexy uh, than De Niro sort of just being like, I'm, you know, I can outread you and I can outlearn you. Like, I, th- I thought his intellectualism was interesting, but I don't think he brought a ton to the character in the way that Robert Mitchum does. Um, but maybe that's just like my personal taste. And I, pref- I preferred the less over to the less over the top uh performance i don't know i'm also i know that my grandmother loved robert mitchum and so i'm like grandma did you like robert mitchum or did you like robert mitchum because now i am not 100 percent sure i mean i mean both of those guys though the the ones that you're talking about gregory peck and robert mitchum if you look at their headshots and stuff like that that like they had those kind of classic hollywood leading man looks Mm -hmm. and i mean to be fair to de niro he he never really has um to to my mind he's always been that kind of edgy kind of uh actor he's he's never had those kind of looks where you're like oh yeah that's a hollywood leading man it's not that he's ugly necessarily but i don't think he's he's ever been like you know termed like a a sex symbol no i think you're wrong i think you're wrong he's very much been a sex symbol i think he i think so i think so because i mean you could go into all sorts of things about like the exotic the exotic and the erotic thinking about De Niro, because I think when he came up, it was very unusual for a man of Italian descent to be, uh, to be seen the way that he was seen after Godfather two. I mean, it was, it was so unusual at all for people of Italian descent to be on screen, let alone, uh, let alone, you know, put on a pedestal in terms of like sexual, capability or virility or something like that. So I, I do think that that was kind of new still in the seventies. Um, it feels old hat to us, but in the mm-hmm. way that I think, I don't I know. Mean, I think yeah. I feel like Pacino gets that more than, than De Niro. It definitely happened after Godfather two, I think, because when he played um, young Vito, I Corleone. think, yes, yeah. he, it, he was very much considered like, Oh, a hottie around that time. Mm-hmm. Speaking for the ladies right now. <laughs> so you would, I mean, yeah, I was going to make a joke about meet the parents or something. And then I just decided not to <laughs> <laughs> fucking set the screen on fire in that movie. Are you kidding me? God, I don't know. But I agree I, that he has an edginess, that he's, you know, raging bull. He is uh Well, so I don't know what people find driver. attractive nowadays. I guess that's a way to put it. Like, I really don't understand what people find uh, to be sexy in a man. Oscar um, Isaac? I mean, yeah, that kind of works. But, like, I just, you know, I'm on TikTok, which is not something I'm proud of. But every once in a while, I see a video with a guy in it. Let this go. I, I think. I think this is the longest running like thing going right now in our podcast. That I that I'm on TikTok. TikTok. Yes, and I mean, not that you're on TikTok, but you observe TikTok. Right. Yeah. No, that's true. I'm not posting. I'm not trying to be an influencer. I'm just like staring through the glass bottom boat, trying to understand what the fish are thinking. Um. But like every once in a while, I will see a video and I will be like, clearly this uh, boy band who had uh, sex with a vampire from Twilight 
you know, who also had sex with, I don't know, some other weird, slightly effeminate, you know, just like silver frosted tipped weirdo must be a cringe compilation, right? Like people don't actually like this. And then I'll read the comments and I'm like, oh no, everyone's losing their fucking mind that this guy is incredibly hot. I don't know what people like anymore. Who are you, know? you referring to? I honestly don't know. It's it. There's a lot of them. Like every once in a while, I will I will flip through TikTok, and it will be like some dude biting his lip and staring into the camera, <laughs> and I'm just like, is this like I I sort of will be like, okay, now I'm waiting for the part where someone will like stitch with this and be like, you know, man, get the fuck out of here, you weird looking son of a bitch. But then instead, it will just be over, and then I'll pause it because I don't want to listen to the terrible music choice, and then I'll read the comments, and I'm like, oh no, this is people like this. This I don't understand. Like, why is this a try thing? Not, try, try not to put too much uh, stock into what 16-year-olds enjoy. But and, see, that's the thing is they're the future, Why? Bro. Why wouldn't you? That's the, that's exactly what I'm saying because is the next generation is deciding who our up. stars are and they are choosing weird-looking people. Like, we're not getting, you know, the, the Robert De Niro's anymore, you know? We're not getting the rough-and-tumble people who look like they could, you know build a roof oh my god don't be such a get off my lawn old man like, <laughs> no, this is who i am now i don't understand um it's you don't it, have many you know, movies starring guys who look like joe don baker anymore <laughs> right I'm just saying you're you learning quick in the 70s i'm just saying i know i know what what was the um that one of my favorite jokes in um in in community was like man no one's been here since like the 70s and someone says how do you know and it says because the poster for the debate team said the topic was who's the most handsome man in america donald sutherland or elliot gould (laughs) 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 but yeah no um yeah that's that's just what i so like i don't know i don't know i don't know what people find attractive anymore so like I, i imagine people would watch this and be like ew why does she like that greasy creepy guy but not in the way the movie wants you to think that you know it's not about his visuals it's about his personality and how he uses it i mean Truly, you don't. You, you don't think a- you don't think that sequence in in the school, like you don't think that he's connecting with her. Are you asking way? me that? No, I mean Robin's clearly the one that's saying that, like she doesn't find him as convincing in this role in like his particular skill set and everything like that. Like that's what she's. Kind oh of- no, I find I find him finally convincing. I'm just saying I personally found robert mitchum to be more drawing like well, you're you're you know a, you're, an, you're an old soul i don't know <laughs> from a viewer point of view for from juliette lewis's character's point of view i could absolutely see why this man pulls her in yeah, I'm, I'm not even 120 yeah, this is not about me robin like first of all you know what i'm attracted to and it's not <laughs> <laughs> he's too ripped for it's, her it's not him <laughs> yeah no <laughs> Um, worm like would be more my taste, but but it's not about that. It's it's here's a uh a, here's an older man who has taken an interest in her, and I think sometimes that all it takes, unfortunately, in a lot of these situations where where uh, young women are taken advantage of or young girls are taken advantage of, where it's it could be could matter does not matter at all what the men look like in some ways. It matters how they use the attention that they're giving mm-hmm. to these people. 
Mm-hmm. Well, they they also connect with them on like certain levels, right? Uh, he mentions books, and she seems to you know kind of blush when he's talking about uh, Tropic of Cancer and and things like this, and you know. But it's not them actually her, connecting; it's manipulation. No, well, exactly. But I mean, that's right, that's is, what she feels. Yes, right? yes. Not to bring 100%. us into another giant fucking argument that we had on here once, but it is is like impossible for a, a, a person of that age to connect honestly with someone of that age. Yeah. What's the cutoff age you think? I not know. 16, but like <laughs> at what point do you, is it not weird and grooming? Uh, I would say it, it like, you know, I would like begin at 18, but then start adding a shit ton of caveats. Like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, education level, actual like social, emotional development, you know, it's it becomes like the Supreme Court ruling on pornography. Like I can't really define you it. Know but it I know it when you I see, see it. it. Yeah. <laughs> Peter, what's your take on all this? And yeah, I don't what's, think we're what's actually your, arguing. What's here. your drop dead date as far as when it's grooming? <laughs> I, I'm not really talking to many sixteen year olds these days. I um I'll get on TikTok and see what I can find. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's my sister's kids, but I don't think that really has to do with what you're talking about. So no. um I befriended a woman in her early twenties, but we were just we we're just friends, and that feels like she's an adult. I don't even know what I'm answering here. <laughs> yeah, but no, see, I we think don't that's have to the keep thing, going like, down this route. You you have to feel like you are someone's peer. I think like, and so if you ever have the feeling like, oh, this person is like so much, like so like not even like younger than I, but like is in such an earlier stage of life, and isn't it great for them? Then that's the point where you should be like, hmm. You know what I should do is I should not pursue this relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How did we end up talking? How, this is not savage love. What is fucking going on? Well, I think this movie brings up a lot of questions about that. Like how much agency, obviously Juliette Lewis's character is being taken advantage of and et cetera, mm-hmm. but the movie gives her so much more power if i don't even know if power but like she she feels more powerful than any Mm -hmm. other than any other version of this character well there's there's that scene with nick nolte when he confronts her where he's like did he force himself on Mm -hmm. her and she's like like smiling and like being like like kind of laughing about it because she knows she's like fuck no he did not you know and it's just like oh shit like this is this relationship and in a way again it kind of goes back and i'm i'm not going to sit here and blame the parents necessarily for like you know children at a certain age are going to be fucking rebellious and so as soon as you Mm -hmm. tell them no they're going to be like okay but why not and how much can I get away with? And, you know, all of these other things. And they want to see what that thing is that they're being, you know, forbidden from. And so I feel like this kind of runs into that kind of classic scene. But, like, his anger and his, like, his he is angry at, at um, Clay, or what's his name? Max? I can't remember his last name. Max Katie? Um, Katie, Katie. He's mad at Katie. And in a way, because of that, he's now mad at his own daughter because his daughter has become kind of infatuated with him. I mean, it's and such a fucking Electra complex. 
Yeah, he doesn't know what the fuck to do. Wait, isn't the, the electric complex is when the daughter wants to have sex with the dad, right? Yeah, but I mean, sure, I'm I'm not using it correctly, but like it's this idea that, you know, this it's all Freudian in this movie, right? Like somebody is threatening his wife and kid, he will no longer be the dominant person because someone else is trying to take over to rape both his daughter and his wife and he feels like he has ownership over his daughter and i thought that scene was so honest when he confronts juliet lewis's character I forget her name and then like physically attacks her like mm-hmm. that felt so real to me and also just like fuck you nick nolte like <laughs> like thinking that you not, I mean, again, that's not his real character's name, but like <laughs> Sam thinks that he has ownership over his daughter's body. And it's mm-hmm. it's so interesting well, to watch it, this movie as a woman because I'm not like not turned on necessarily by like Max Katie's, you know, attraction to Juliet Lewis or his interest in raping her or whatever. But that scene where he does sort of assault her and she is not sure how to feel about it in the moment like i could see from her perspective why that is a turn on Mm -hmm. that power struggle yeah i mean like Mm -hmm. it's it's um i mean i mean we could do an entire podcast just about this but like yeah he he the whole thing he brings up like you know your parents are punishing you for what they did to you and like really it kind of lets you know his mind state is that I believe that he believes everything he's saying. And it is attractive to a teenager whose brain is not yet fully developed. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's Mm -hmm. where you're coming from with this guy. You know, these are formative sexual experiences for this character and could potentially create some kinks later down the road for her. Yeah. But like, I would say like, not like good, healthy kink kinks, but like, as though you were talking about a hose and why the water isn't flowing correctly, kinks. Like, legitimate naughty <laughs> problems that you need to untangle. Naughty problems. Yes, K- with a K. With a K, everyone. <laughs> Calm down. Um, I I love this. I love talking about that. I do need to tell you first that uh, John Doe Baker, Don Joe Baker, what is his name? I can never remember. <laughs> John Doe. John Doe Baker. No, it's Joe Don Baker. Yeah, Joe Don Baker. Yeah, not Don Joe. Anyway, Joe Don Baker is the most ineffectual human being on the face of the planet for anything all times ever. This man does nothing (laughs) to make anyone safer. And you could argue only makes every situation worse. And I will say again that Chief Wiggum making a bunch of fishing wire and attaching it to a Krusty the Clown doll and saying, this will let me know if Sideshow Bob comes into your house. I would not have expected that that is a thing that happened in this movie. And yet, Joe Don Baker thinks he's a clever motherfucker and uh, he gets himself got for that. So, good for him. Also, he's got three dudes with pipes and bike chains and they can't finish the job? <sighs> anyway. Yeah, they kind of they they, they biffed on that it. one. Um, have you seen the Ben Stiller Kate Munster sketch? No. 
It's from the Ben Stiller show from way back in the early 90s on the Fox network. And I think in the first very first episode, they did a thing called Kate Munster, which was basically a parody of the Cape Fear trailer with Ben Stiller playing Eddie Munster, trying to get back at the network exec who canceled the Munsters back in the 60s. It's very funny. Um, it is on YouTube and um, I fully intend on watching it. <laughs> okay. Um, it did occur to me the other night, I will flat out admit that as much as I like the movie, it did occur to me that when Nick Nolte is is praising Jodan Baker at the dinner table. Once the the minute I walked in there, I felt I felt <laughs> it felt like this guy had it all. He knew what he was doing, and I was like, I don't know if I get that from Jodan Baker, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I didn't get that from that sequence. Like yeah. at first, it, at first, I thought it was actually his other his other attorney friend that he was like going on about and. I just didn't realize because they are two very large uh, white males. Right. Fred Thompson their- and Joe Don Baker are never in a scene together. And I believe it's because <laughs> there's a supermission, a Superman type of thing going on. <laughs> yeah. So they, they definitely have like their own, like similar auras that they're kind of giving off. And so I just, I didn't realize that until I realized like he was, he started talking about like being hired for him. And I was just like, Oh, this is a different guy. And I was like, wait, why is he berating him? And then, and then at a certain point, it just kind of switches, and he's just like, "All right, so let me pour some Pepto Bismol and some Jack Daniels in this thing, and let me tell you all about what I'm gonna do." And I was just like, "Okay, I guess, I guess, like now he's convincing." But I was just like, "I don't know. I didn't. I wasn't convinced walking out of that sequence." And then he's, I mean, maybe he he's doing that as a front to kind of ease his own family's kind of conscience or not conscience, but like fears in that That moment. So that could be, that could be, yeah, I feel you don't, you don't want to say, Hey family, I got this guy that, you know, maybe is going to work. Maybe not. We'll, we'll, we'll test the waters with them. Right. This, I found a guy, he's sort of fine. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want that. That's not what you want to (laughs) hear. Now I'm wondering if Fred Dalton Thompson would have been good casting in that role, but I don't know if I would buy him doing the Pepto Bismol and Jack Daniels thing. Um, yeah, you know, you need like an Ethan Hawke to really pull off that cocktail. <laughs> so funny, uh, you know, casting thing here, but apparently, uh, you know, Spielberg initially kind of like developed this. Um, mm-hmm. And he ended up, uh, he reportedly wanted Bill Moore, Murray to be katie which is that's just, one of those ideas that i feel like sounds good <laughs> and then you it's just like it never would have worked well it, it also it also was a more than likely in spielberg's hands a very different movie yeah right i, I, I like you know last night the um the screenwriter uh some quotes from the screenwriter that, you know, he wrote it basically for Spielberg originally. And it sounds like he was writing an ambulant entertainment film as well. And when mm-hmm. Scorsese came in and he kept the writer on, but he basically changed a lot of little things. He made an example of when Joe Don Baker is following uh, De Niro and he's in that coffee shop and the, a plate of food gets brought over. He said that in the original version, it was like this massive tray of food of pancakes and eggs and all this other stuff as like a joke. And Scorsese is like, no, 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 just just one plate, just one plate. And it sounds like there was a lot of that sort of stuff that Scorsese mm-hmm. 
change in addition to putting in probably a lot more anguish <laughs> anguish the the god stuff the blood yeah 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 i can see yeah now, now knowing scorsese's kind of like background i can see the god stuff being yeah definitely gotta have that guy's right we haven't talked about a, a last year during the pandemic when it well during during the opening act of the pandemic um we talked about <laughs> uh bringing out the dead Mm-hmm. Which is a very God heavy Scorsese film. So, mm-hmm. well, our 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 favorite Scorsese film, you know, uh, step on that that Jesus stone. <laughs> gotta silence. gotta talk about silence. Yep. Yeah, but I mean that's like directly about God and Jesus. So like I feel like you can't you can't include that in like what are Scorsese's most religion heavy movies? Because like. Why not? I, I guess you can't. No, that's a good point. I don't know. I just, there's something to my mind that's different about like a contemporary movie. Cause I feel like movies are able to hide being about religion by being set in the past. And like, you can't 100% get away with being a modern religious film because then people think you're like a pure flicks. God's not dead for kind of situation, you know? Well, I mean, what was, uh, the card counter director, uh, Schrader, his last film. Yeah. Schrader's last film. So, you know, first reformed. Yeah. That works. Yes. No, that's, that's the exception that proves the rule. Okay. I don't Fair know. <laughs> I, I just don't think, I, I don't know how many, how many filmmakers are necessarily interested in, in touching on those kind of subject matters anymore. Yeah, no, what's um, funny is that um, right most that, like, most, uh, most directors don't have a strong changed. vision about that anymore. What they do have a strong vision about is this obscure Marvel character. You know, ever since they were a kid, they really felt a personal <laughs> connection to, I don't know, Minuteman or whatever the fuck. Well, is yeah. there a Minuteman? I don't know. <laughs> of course there's a Minuteman. What does he do? I don't know. There's there's the minute men in uh Watchmen. So Yeah, well, yeah, that. but they're the they're, you know. I'm going to look a up Minuteman comic character while we have a discussion about other stuff. Anyway, um you're going to find it. I did. I did find it. Real name Jack Weston is a fictional comic book hero. Jack Weston? DC his name is Marvel? his name is Jack Weston, yeah. DC Marvel? Hmm. What, what uh it's Master him? Comics. What the fuck? This is not a. Oh no! It's I think he's owned by Vertigo. DC. It is now. It has been absorbed by DC Comics. Okay. Well, there you go. Uh, Star Labs Office of Strategic Services. Oh, Star Labs. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah I know yeah. Star Labs is. He's sporting a costume inspired by the American flag. Mm. Yay! It doesn't tell me anything about what his powers are. I'm not 100 percent sure. I mean, that he I has mean there's any. like Condiment Man. Like you know, like seriously, there's. There's you just throw a name and then put man behind it and there's some. I'm going to relish defeating you, Batman. Bah-ha-ha-ha. Anyway, um, let's move on, please, dear God, and forget that I said that. Um, Robin has <laughs> has fallen asleep. I I'm just not one for religious movies. I'm trying to think of one. Robin really again, but your trick I think is a great one where you just assume it's about aliens. F you, <laughs> George Salukas or whatever the fuck his name is from Ancient okay, Aliens. To explain this, when we watched uh, Tree of Life, I was going through a UFO Reddit phase, and so it it kind of worked for me to think of it in terms of these like larger like metaphysical terms instead of just like God and grace and all of that. 
Um, yeah, yes. Just no. She said, "Oh, you know that the one that the whole creation of the universe thing. It just you know I thought of aliens, and I was like, the movie starts with a quote from Job. How do you not immediately oh, go to God? Just... More Job." Yeah, wow. man. Jo- okay, fucking Job's everybody. Getting... Writers love Job. Can I just like Job was a huge part of the leftovers. Like people love Job because it's religious. God's in it. Men and a love fucking Job. Guy suffers. Men love Job. What women don't love Job? No. Woman can't love Job. Women don't give a fuck about Job. What's your favorite book of the Bible? Numbers. <laughs> Exodus. Okay. All right. See, that's another good one. Yeah. Now I just want to listen to the uh, soundtrack to Prince of Egypt. So thank Ew, you. For that. It, no, okay, f off. It's all about <laughs> Ten Commandments. Prince of Egypt sucks. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, there can be miracles when you believe. There shan't be. Oh okay. Well, whatever. Um, let's let's. Uh, I don't know. Let's throw it to our guest <laughs> to save <laughs> ourselves. I, I can't help you on the Bible thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I will say, I realized in listening back to a couple of episodes now that I have consistently brought up church, uh, usually because I I watch a movie Saturday night and then I go to church, and so it's still in my head. Um, Mm -hmm. Not a thing that happened this time because I had to watch this movie today at the distillery. So, So, I'm sorry. (laughs) It was a different form of church, basically. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, still, still making my, making my, my impact on life and everything. No, that's good. Reaching out, talking to God through the creation of liquor. Um, but yeah, no. I. Uh, <laughs> it's interesting. We you know what is interesting for me, though. Um, and this this kind of I, I, I found myself and this says something about the movie and how we're kind of talking about like it was an Amblin thing. You know, we're not really sure what its thing was. You know, it was written with someone else in mind. And then Scorsese came in and made some changes. But like, I didn't feel any like fatherly concern for the daughter in this movie, which I was a con- little concerned about. I'm like, oh man, this man is menacing this this daughter of this other man, and I have a child now, and how is that going to affect me? And I just didn't really feel it at all. Like it, it obviously was creepy, but it didn't hit me in the visceral way that I was expecting it to. And I wonder if that's kind of like a choice that was made or a a failure of the movie. Like I wonder if Scorsese was like, I want the dads in the audience to like be creeped out by this, you know? Because like even even when I didn't have a daughter, the movie Fear, not Cape Fear, but Fear. Oh, that movie's scary. Right. That's a fucked up movie. And I was like, oh, now I never want to have children. Um, But this movie, I was like, well, yeah, whatever. She can light him on fire. Um, And I just didn't, I didn't feel that, that deep, you know, inset in my bones, like, uh, my daughter, you know, instead I was just like, yeah, this is fun. Like, this is a, this is like an old school Hollywood movie. And it kind of has that. That bravado and that, you know, that boldness to it. But I didn't feel it as, as viscerally as I feel like I maybe should have. It, it comes up with a way to not to not get people upset about a dog dying in a movie, which is don't show the dog die. Mm. They just <laughs> talk about it. Yes, that is true. Yeah. Yeah, Lang gets her monologue, her Oscar monologue. She gets her monologue. She gets her monologue, but we don't see the dead dog. So it's, in that sense, the movie is aware that it, look, the movie, I I don't want to say this like I'm diminishing it. It is a popcorn movie. Oh, 100%. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think that's the thing no, is like no, you hear Scorsese and you're like, oh, man, this is going to be, you know, but this, I mean, I even, the one review that I had time to read before we hopped on here was um, uh, Roger Ebert. And he he brings that up. He's yeah. like, you know, this is 
Martin Scorsese just struck a deal with Universal and Amblin. You know, this is him getting a bigger budget to do like a broad mainstream kind of thing. And it's good. I don't know if it's the direction I want him to go in. Well, I mean, yeah, I, I remember that Ebert was not a fan of this one, or maybe it was just a two and a half star kind of review. He gave it a three and out of four. He gave it a oh, Robin. Did? Oh, I thought it was less than that. Oh, my God. I'm shocked. Okay. No, he, well, he really he really liked it, but I think it was that kind of thing where it's like, you know, it happens to us all every fucking day now, where it's like, oh, so-and-so has gotten a Marvel film. Like, uh, that's like good for them with the money, but like, uh, yeah. like I hope they don't get lost in that. I, I think Scorsese proved that Ebert had nothing to worry about. Oh, 100%. And, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, because, like, I mean, you know, obviously, like, look at what he's done. Look at what he's done since then. Yes. Or you know, his child, you know, Age of Innocence Casino Kunden. I mean, there's. Yep. No, and then I mean, like, his his movie for the kids was about, like, George Melies. Like, it's this. There's yeah. nothing. There's nothing you got to worry about with this guy. He's you never go. going to let you down like that. Yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't think Scorsese wanted to make. 10 or 12 movies like this either. I don't know how he feels about the movie. The movie. I think I've seen maybe a quote where he was like, I wouldn't make a movie like that now, but he's older now. So he's not. Right, really it just may not be what he wants to do. Exactly. Well, he doesn't care about these themes anymore. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, like, that's the thing is I think he probably said what he needed to say about it. Mm-hmm. You know, he's finding the other things that he wants to do, especially as, especially like, you know, as he gets older, like at this point, he probably exactly. was the age that Nick Nolte's character was, you know, so he like Roughly could find yeah. something there. And now, you know, yeah. he's, he's the age that, that Sheeran was in, uh, in the Irishman and he's going to die. Well, the soon. movie, the whole movie, the Irishman is about a man looking back on his life and feeling he's irrelevant now. Yep. Mm-hmm. We, we already know that the Irishman is in his last movie, but it feels like it's meant to be somebody's last movie. It just does. Yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, like, uh, yeah, it, you can't, you cannot watch the Irishman and be like, oh, is like there? Is he? Is he done? Like, is he just not told us? But then instead, he's like, no, 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 no. I've got, I've got a whole bunch of stuff. I've got a, I've got. Like, once again, it's his his thing of like, oh, Martin Scorsese, he's developing twenty things. You know, there's a TV documentary. Well, yeah, sure. There's like a he's miniseries. Making- longer and longer films too i feel like because well, we don't know wolf how killers of, of the flower moon is gonna go but sure wolf of wall street and then silent silence is like close to three hours i'm pretty sure i think so i want to say it's like, like 240 yeah it's 241 i'm, yeah. I'm pretty convinced and then, that you know, casino casino and wolf of wall street are both almost exactly three hours which really sounds to me like a studio saying not a minute over three hours no way no <laughs> so he just he goes right to the edge of it i'm convinced that that can't be a coincidence but what's funny is i unlike most movies where that's the case where i'm like the real the studio probably could have like pushed a little harder for another 20 minutes i honestly feel like the studio executives like saw the cut and were like deeply upset and they're like are we sure we can't let him have another 10 minutes like this is fun like this is moving yeah i just imagine them well, being like I mean, look they we've, fucking we've released that lot, during right? christmas right Dude, i one again one of my favorite yeah, yeah, the I rowan know, family goes to the movies stories is the day after christmas me my brother his friend my mom and my dad all go and see wolf of wall street <laughs> Yeah, let's go see the Marty phone. Dude, it was so... uh, Peter, it was so amazing. We're sitting there. We're laughing our asses off. At some point, my mother turns to me. Again, Queens, Italian. She turns to me, still with a smile on her face, and says, Brian, 
I know why I'm laughing. Why are you laughing? <laughs> and I was Jesus. just like, uh, this movie, uh, he's got so much cocaine on his nose. Um, <laughs> I love that movie. The movie's great. Yeah. That movie brought my family closer perfect. together. To, to me, that's a perfect movie. Yep. I love it. No, the, I, I've probably already said it, but I like no saying it. And uh, I love my family, so I'm going to say it. Like, I, the later on, I, I was like at home for like a week for Christmas and I saw that movie and it became an in-joke in our family. Like, I would go out to the bar with some friends and they'd be like, all right, drive safe. And I'm like, don't worry, I'll get the car home without a scratch on it. Ah! <laughs> we still do that to this day. It's incredible. Um, but yeah, so obviously my family is uh, a lot more well-adjusted than the uh, the Bowden family. <laughs> And I wonder, I'd have to look up the running times. Relatively speaking, this is this isn't one of the shortest Scorsese movies, but it's, no, it's nowhere still like near two hours, you know, it's, it's, it yeah, still it's feels very long to me. I mean, it's 128 mi- minutes and, and I've kind of hinted at that. And kind of my opening is I agree, Robin it feels like it was going for a while. And then, like I said, I, the house sequence happened and I for, I forgot about like this kind of classic like clips from this film where, yes, they're on the water. And so I forgot all about that. And at a certain point, I was kind of like, what the fuck is this Cape Fear thing? Like, what, what, where, when are they going to say the name? When are they going to get know, you, you're Fear? All, uh, you know, you're always just like, okay, when's the name going to come into play? And so, like, like I said, he's he's murdered the private investigator. He's inside the house, and I paused it, and there was 32 minutes left on the runtime, and I was like, "What the fuck? Like, where is this thing gonna go? Like, it's got to wrap up soon. Like, no way they can draw this out. And, you know, th- there's a car ride where he hitches a ride underneath <laughs> using a belt. So, you know, and then he comes out, <laughs> and a woman sees him, and yeah, it's just like, you know what? what are you you know whose problem say? this isn't? It's not mine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, don't, I ain't about to get you know, involved with well, what these there, fucking white people are up to. <laughs> like, there nope. is a sequence before that, though, before he finally arrives at his destination, where they're pulling away from like the vegetable stand, and clearly there is a guy looking out from the parking lot, and it looks like he's looking at Robert De Niro, going, "That sure looks like a person underneath that car." You, you got oh, well, Jimmy, you get a load of that shit. <laughs> There's a fucking guy under that guy's car. <laughs> I was just like, are you not going to say anything? That's fucking weird. When it, once again, Bill, you Did know you whose problem something? this isn't? You know who doesn't have yes. time to get into this? You know who's got kids at home? It's, I do. I'm not fucking, about to It's do the fucking this. South. You got yes. one kid. <laughs> <laughs> I was speaking hypothetically as though I were that character. <laughs> no i get involved in so much core at this point is fully inured to me being like i know that i just said we were in a hurry but there is a dog on the side of the road and i need to try to capture it so we can find his family <laughs> which is a thing that happened today i took off my like belt re- rebel in the middle of the road to uh to try to get this dog because uh i didn't know where it was going or what it was doing and then luckily its owner like found me trying to get this dog and i was like is this yours can you take over <laughs> yes, I have to somewhere to be. You're distracting my daughter. <laughs> um, but yes, yes. I don't um, know. This movie just feels like way too long, and I think Peter, you kind of 
hit on this when you when it feels like half the movie is what am I going to do about Max Katie? <laughs> like that is ninety nine percent of the movie. Well, I, I guess what, I wasn't even trying to talk about how that so much is it's much more of a plot driven film than certain things like even Shutter Island or whatever. Right, because um, Shutter Island is like, oh, you know, mental health and uh, the the traumas of war and uh, sure, and sure, sure, this, exactly. this movie is just like Max Cady is a bad guy. And it's like, well, yeah, Nick Nolte, <laughs> mm-hmm. he is. He's not a fucking great individual. And it just and, feels like endless rape scenes to me. This one, they just it goes on for a long time. The whole the, the whole house thing is like a, yeah. a, a just one prolonged sexual menace. Yeah. Oh, oh, the end. Well, I mean, yes. there's a lot of them. There's a lot. There's a there's a I w- I'll call it a rapey vibe is in a lot yeah. of this movie. That's the movie. Sure. And that's what my husband was getting. At. Well, my, when my husband and I were talking about it, he's like something about Robert Mitchum, who, it, it, even though it's much a much subtler performance, is much more menacing than De Niro, who is just balls to the wall. Like, I'm going to put on a southern accent like it. It just it felt like too much. I don't know. He really took me out of the the movie in some ways. I don't mean to shit on De Niro. Like it's a, it's a fine performance, but I think I don't know with my uh, thirty two year old glasses on instead of my twenty two year old glasses on. I I do see it differently now. I get that. Mm. I get that. So are there any final he, he, thoughts he on this before we uh, we sew up our, our discussion and uh, and get out of here? Okay, I have a question. Okay. Yes. It is 1990. This movie came out in 91, which was mm-hmm. about exactly 30 years or almost exactly 30 years after the original. So mm-hmm. we are about due for a new Cape Fear. Who would you cast? Oh, I thought you were going to ask who would, I, who would I get to direct it. Um Okay. Well, either way, who would direct it? Who would you cast? Joel? I would have a woman direct it this time. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, I think Joel Edgerton is the dad. Hmm. Um, I think Chris Evans is Max Katie. What? I think. Why is that a what? What? Are you? Wow, you just got so high pitched. I don't. Need, I might need to figure out a way to put captions on this podcast so that people know you made a noise. Why are you upset by that? Uh, he's too pretty. Oh, you. But see, that's the thing is, I think you want a pretty guy for the the whole thing but with the dog. He knows how babies taste. <laughs> they they and what do they taste, Bill? They taste good. They taste the best. Um, yes. What was I going to say? No, I think you can dirty him up enough, you know, and I, but I think he would retain that, that charisma and charm that would like, he, he could threaten a man and entice a, 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 a young, I, I don't want to call her a woman, but I also don't want to call her a child now, like a teen, a person on the cusp of womanhood. Um, maybe Caitlin Deaver for the daughter. Mm. Oh. Yeah, I was gonna I think say she's too old now. I really think she's too old to she, play that character. I, uh, now I'm now I'm upset because I was about to say, isn't she playing a teenager in Dear Evan Hansen? But then again, yeah, isn't twenty seven like, year old Ben so Platt? So is Ben Platt. <laughs> okay, wait. What about Thomas and Mackenzie? Eh? Eh? She's way too old. I mean, she's like twenty two now. But she fucking looks young, <laughs> right? Nah. 
You know, Julia Lewis yeah. was what, 19 or something, but she passed us for 15. And I think I, I actually don't even know who would be good because, but you would need somebody that you believe is that age. Okay, maybe I, I don't know. I haven't seen any of the, the things for last night in Soho, so I don't know what she looks like now. I'm clearly thinking of just Thomas and Mackenzie from Leave No Trace. No, she she looks a lot more uh, grown but she up. Was in, in fact, no, she we was just in, watched her in, in old. old. Yeah, she played like a 16-year-old. She's 21. That doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, Caitlin Deaver is 24. But yeah. these people look young. Also, again, I'm thinking of Caitlin Deaver from Justified, which is probably like 10 years ago at this point. But you really want a young-looking actress to show I how horrifying this is. I think that they could be made to look young. I think that Thomas McKenzie and Old looked pretty fucking young, which is ironic nah. given the name of the movie. She does, but what I'm saying is like what made the what uh, what makes it work is when they look not just oh that she could pass for 15, but she when she actually is 15, you're like holy shit, this is a child. And that is yeah, so but do I want to put an actress in a situation where she's got like because Robert De Niro is legitimately 30 years older than than Juliette Lewis, and so there was a part of me that was just like just like that's a creep factor just because they did that in reality, and like I know it's acting, but still. You know, or do know you, I... or do you accidentally turn on the audience when this twenty-four-year-old girl is acting like she's sixteen? That's true. You know what is some? You know, uh, have we all seen the movie The Tale? Yes, yes, uh, uh, that is Laura Dern. brilliant, uh, no, brilliantly done, brilliantly oh, done. Um, so The Tale, it was an HBO movie. It came out of Sundance yeah. and then it was, um, it didn't, they didn't, they didn't keep, they, it went to HBO. And I think it was smart to go to HBO because I, I don't see this thing getting released in theaters. Um, but it's, it's written and directed by Jennifer Fox and I think it's, uh, semi-autobiographical. Um, but basically. Yes, very autobiographical. I, yeah, I just didn't want to. Um, but anyway, so it's about a woman who uh, is reminded of a relationship that she had with an older couple when she was young. And for the first, I don't know, like, I want to say like half hour of the movie, when she thinks back on it, she sees herself one way. I think she was like 13 at the time. And there's an actress playing her at that. And then she finally goes home and looks at a picture of herself when she was actually 13. And she goes from like, oh... You know, the the lily that hasn't unfurled its petals yet, you know, this person is like, you know, going to be attracted. It's a fucking full on child. It's a child. It it's is. And, and it yeah, beca- like my so stomach well turned and I like almost threw up and had to like turn off the TV when I was watching it. Um, and it was, that's the re- exact reaction that should have occurred. Right. Yeah. It, it is a viscerally upsetting reveal. And um, I don't know why I thought about it uh, literally today while I was doing the dishes. Um, but I did. And I just like shivered and like had to like take a steadying breath because I just like for whatever reason, I, I thought about that. And I was like, oh, God, that was weirdly affected. Oh, I remember but I, think I was thinking about it. I was going to watch Enlightened like and I was like, Laura Dern, what did I have seen her in recently? I, I think you bring up a good point. I want to make it clear, like the what you're describing, Brian, is that she like in the flashback sequence or the flashback scenes, it looks like the character who's playing the younger version of her is like maybe 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. And then the memory immediately changes so that the flashbacks are now showing like a 12 year old. Yeah. And it is such a stark contrast. Right. Um, it, it really, really underlines filmmaking. that whole what you basically were talking about, Robin. Like, oh, are we accidentally going to turn people on? 
You know, like if we have a person who, you know, is at least like developed to the point where they appear to be approaching, you know, sexual maturity and womanhood. Whereas if we actually show like what a, what a person can look like that at age, which is like a, a full on fucking child. Yeah. And I think the actress who plays uh, the character, I forget the girl's name, actually, Nancy, uh, or it was Danny in the 1991 film, but it's Nancy in the 1962. And the mm. actress who plays her, Lori Martin, um, it looks so childlike and looks tiny compared to, to Gregory Peck. And I think that's what makes her character work so well is because it is the fright she feels and the um, the innocence or whatever, like it, it, it's just, it is so much bigger in that movie. And I think that's why it would make sense to actually hire a younger actress. I couldn't even tell you, you know, who is 13 now in these movies. Yeah. Um, I don't want to Google the phrase 13 year old actress. I know (laughs) or not 13, but like maybe 14 or 15, I think would be more appropriate. Um, but still, I don't, I don't know who is that age, but yeah, I just who would be Max Cady though now, besides Chris, Chris Evans. <laughs> Peter, what do you think? Um, what about that Jason Manzukas guy? Oh my God, that would be sp- I, okay. No, because now I'm thinking of it like a comedy. But no, I think. Please he go on. I want to hear what you, what made you think of Jason Manzukas. I don't know. He just came to my mind. I don't know why. I kind of love it though, because like he, I will say like uh, Max Cady's kind of got cousin Rafi energy from the mm-hmm. league. For anyone who's seen it, like just like you know, you live wire, not totally certain what he's gonna do. Like charismatic and like yeah, kind I, I, of attractive, but like in a deeply upsetting way. Okay, yes, the guy is known for comedy, but I was trying to think of somebody off the beaten path who would be interesting because it feels like so many casting choices these days don't interest me very much. Right, I feel like the last interesting casting choice on like a major, major mainstream motion picture was like The Dark Knight. It's just like, oh, Heath Ledger is the Joker. Wow, that's really interesting. I know what you mean. Yeah, Yeah. I guess I'm trying to think about it along something like that. What about, um, oh, what's who's who is Earl from My Name is Earl? Uh, Jason Lee? Jason Lee? Does he still act? I thought he retired or something. Oh, God. Do we have to? I mean, like, we could talk. He's already done his own Max Cady because in Dogma, he plays like basically the same character. Does he? Is he in Dogma? The demon version. Yes. Is he? Yeah. Let's see. He plays a demon who has the same sort of energy. Oh, yeah. He resides in Trump, Texas with his family. Um, he was in something called the Harper House. Oh, these are all animated things. Yeah, I thought he was like yeah. doing skateboarding or something. Now, I mean, that's what he uh, began doing. Right? Well, isn't he like fifty-five? So, uh, what's the last time he's been on camera? It's a couple of years. Yeah. All right. All right. I'll. 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 Uh, Bill, why don't you? Why don't you come up with someone while we think this through? I'm. I've been like right clicking on people and everybody's 25 so you know <laughs> you're just thinking of a bunch fucking, of 25 year old actors he's been swiping right on all these 25 year olds no, oh, no kidding in all seriousness for, forget about mitch and peck is there really a nick nolte equivalent right now see this is, is what i'm talking about is we don't I, uh, I again and i'm sorry robin for the old man on porch thing but like we don't have a lot of men manly men or man's men we don't or, got no men no mo <laughs> I mean, you know, do we have a Nolte? Like, it, who is who? Who would get cast in a movie for like a um um uh, early to middle aged like working class or like upper middle class man 
that it wouldn't feel weird. Like Nolte gets away with it because he's got kind of that suburban yeah. brick face. And I just don't know if we have actors like that right now. Remember when they Steve's did the Evil Horror remake well, like 15 they, they years can, ago? And they, and they got Ryan Reynolds, who was like 30 at the time or something. That's just mm-hmm. what they do. Yeah. I mean, they could just cast Keanu Reeves in this and cast against type, right? Because he's like Colin now Farrell. Neo and, you know, John Wick and all of this. And it's like, okay, let's cast fucking Keanu Reeves Ooh. and make him, like, ineffectual and just, like, going to private detectives and, like, whining about the law not being able to protect I him. feel like that would annoy everyone because they would keep expecting for him to, to wick out and then he just wouldn't wick mm-hmm. out and then he would It would be mad. Colin Farrell. I think he's gravitated to sort of, sort of these kinds of roles in the okay, last but, few years. Uh, I feel bad for saying this, but don't you feel like that's a little too close to killing of a sacred deer territory? Yeah, probably. Sure. Yeah, or, I If agree. he could bring something new to it. I mean, I liked him in that movie as much as I did not like that movie. I like Colin Farrell, but it feels like he's done more than a couple of crappy remakes by this point. Uh, I, he's bounced yeah, I don't back, disagree. though, right? How about... Ben Foster from Max Cady. Oh, you know, oh, I love that yeah. because I love Charlie Prince from 310 to Yuma, and I feel like he could bring that He's energy. He's such a scumbag. He's a great He could scumbag. really do it. He I could love play, him. oh, what if he plays both roles? What if he plays the dad? <laughs> what, the like a Max Peter Pan kind of edible thing? I don't know. I don't even know. I mean, like, you know, but he's the kind of guy I feel like if you told him, like, we want you to play both these people and you can't have any makeup, but you need to make them completely different. He would he could do it. He would, you know, no, change but, his uh, posture Peter and... Pan, you know, like the traditional casting is that they have the same person play their father as they do Captain Hook. So oh, do it's they? like, That's yeah, it's like weird and creepy and I don't know. It's part of the tradition. Yeah. You could do like a Cape Fear Peter Pan mashup. Uh, <laughs> like use all of these like Peter Pan <laughs> motifs. I don't know. I'm just saying I think a woman should direct this movie. <laughs> so that's what you've gotten to is that you're just like, all right, well, uh, I've made no choices, but it should be a woman. What about I think it should be a woman. Yeah. What about Garrett Headland as the dad? I can't even tell you who that is. I have no clue who that <laughs> is. Maybe that's perfect mm. for the dad then. We right, let's even, get we, the fuck out of here. No, because now we have to figure out who would play the mom. Olivia She's Wilde. She's so inconsequential. Olivia Wilde. All right. Uh, well, oh, you know who's really great at playing inconsequential wives is Laura Dern. No, she's too powerful. No, have, have you seen her in now. The Founder and in, in Cold Pursuit? She is perfect at barely being in a movie and making a lot of money from it. I don't know, man. I don't know. I think she. I think well, she pursuit, takes. So you could get Liam Neeson to play Sam Bowden. I have been staying away from that. Even he's though that, too okay. old now. He's like Grandpa yeah. Bowden. That's maybe okay. maybe. Yeah, I don't know. That's a good. Yeah, that's a good point. Um. Anyway, uh, if you have your own suggestions, ladies and gentlemen, listening at home, <laughs> now that we've spent probably twenty minutes on this, um, reach out. Uh, we'd love to hear him honestly. And um, if you're still here, uh, I know that you have time on your hands, so do it. Anyway, uh, so that's it for today. Thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) What was that? Aggro. (laughs) I know. I'm negging our audience. Um, Let's, uh, Robin Barr, what are we talking about next week? Uh, The Many Saints of Newark. 
Woo! That is the Woo. Sopranos prequel. Do you think um, Avelino is going to come up in this film? I hope it does. I hope we'll find it out. Does. The family's I from seen it yet, but I hope it does. You know, I know one person who saw it and she didn't say anything. So hmm. about about hmm. Avelino or just anything yeah. ever again. <laughs> she didn't say anything about Avelino. <laughs> so if she I'll still hold out hope. I'll now I got to Google where this is. Is it near Naples? I've never been. Is I've it never near Porto Rosso? <laughs> okay. You've what? seen that movie way too many times. Use a stupido. Silencio <laughs> Bruno. No, it's in Campania. Camp- Campania? I don't know. I don't know. Pretend you're Mario and say it again. Oh my god. Mario. No, it's Mario. We're not getting into we're not getting into to the, the casting news on the Mario movie. No, I didn't want to talk about wait, that. Wait, wait. Bill and Robin, did you watch the 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 video the 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 TikTok that I found on Twitter that had the killer whales in it? Yes, and I was what confused about that oh, for well, a lot of reasons. That. I've seen that. that, that yeah, it's all over Reddit that right is... now, too. Oh, okay, okay. Isn't that chilling, Peter? Yeah, is it? yeah it is. What? Yeah, what it's fucking... It's... About? Okay, Bill, all right, setting the scene. We open... There is a woman who's got her, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a TikTok video. So it's all filmed on a phone. So your point of view with this woman who is speaking the whole time and she is looking at a sea lion and is like, where'd you come from? Like, what are you doing here? Like, why are you on my boat? And then she looks off in the distance and there are two fucking killer whales. And she's like, oh, oh boy. And then she looks at this, this, this sea lion that's looking at her like, I'm not leaving your boat. And it's not like a boat with walls. It's like a flat top boat. There's nothing keeping her from the water. It's a grill. And she's like, you have to go. And then she looks over the edge of the boat. And through the murk of the Arctic waters, you can see one of the killer whales slide under the boat. And it's just a minute and a half of this fucking woman being like, holy shit. There's some killer whales who want to eat the sea lion that is on my boat. And I don't know how to react to it. And it, it. It's incredible. You got to check it out. I tagged you in it on Twitter. It's the greatest film I've seen all year. It's I watched be... it, but I'm like, what happened? That's the thing is it ends on a cliffhanger. Um, apparently, I did see uh, if you if you click on that tweet and scroll down, there is a second video and it shows that the 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 the, the sea line eventually did like just jump off and make a run for it. And she fucking powered it back to the shore. I felt bad for that sea line. I felt fucking horrible for that seal, but also the woman is like, I can't just like start running away because then they might follow me. Um, apparently, people were giving her flack for it because they're like, why didn't she try to save it? And then people posted other videos of like killer whales just decimating an ice flow just to get one seal. And someone said, you know, uh, they're not called like the retiring friendly whale. You know, they're called the fucking killer whale. Like you don't mess with these things. They're called orcas. No, they're killer whales. Should we talk about the movie Orca? Oh, yeah, 100%. How about Free Willy? Can we do uh, The Day of the Dolphin, too? Open water? See, that's the thing. Is like I would I I feel like Yamakolisera could stretch that TikTok video to like a really powerful like 88 minutes. No? No one's with me on this? Anyway, Bill, watch the video. We're talking about it next time. I'm watching this, it. We're good. Oh, you're watching She's it right watching now? watching it right now. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Anyway, um, so next week we're talking about The Many Saints of Newark. It is going to be uh, in theaters and on HBO Max, the the paid ad-free tier. So 
Check it out. Um, it is the prequel to The Sopranos. Uh, I have not seen many episodes of The Sopranos. So if you are like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to watch it because I've never seen The Sopranos. I will be your guinea pig and I'll let you know what I thought of it. Sans Soprano knowledge. Can I just say the, the, the woman I know who saw the movie never seen an episode of the sopranos she liked the movie very much oh fucking oh, fantastic that's really good for me i'm also super excited that i can watch this one from home because uh my uh my goddamn life's about to get crazy um in a good way in a good way so be happy for me but also pray for me because i don't know how i'm gonna get to november but anyway that's it um peter thank you so much for being here and putting up with our shenanigans Sure. Thank you for having me. I had a great time. Thank you. Yeah. Before we started rolling, Peter was like, is there anything I need to know? And I was like, just uh, be prepared for anything. There's, like, <laughs> <laughs> And you did it. You made it through and you were a fantastic guest. Uh, so once again, thank, thank you for being you. here. Um, let's tell the fine people at home uh, where we can be found between now and the next time they hear from us. So Peter, would you like to plug any uh, places or social medias or anything like that? I'm on Twitter at Peter A. Peel. I can be found on Instagram there too, but at, at the same one, but I don't really post there very much, but I'm on Twitter all the time at Peter A. Peel. And my blog is Mr. Peel's Sardine Liqueur. Just Google that. You'll be able to find it and or through the Twitter account. So yeah. Awesome. Bill Graham, have you finished watching the video? I did. What'd you it, think of it? In an uh, unsatisfactory way. No, it doesn't. Yeah, it ends with her looking right. out and then one of the things surfaces and blows water out of its blowhole and then cuts to black. I'm- it's with horrifying. You, Bill. I'm with oh you, Bill. God, you fucking people. I have seen a lot of Predator Prey videos in my life and, you know. No, you all are Nothing crazy. happened. Oh, my God. Well, it's clearly we have to have a whole a whole hour long no, special it's, it's episode dramatic. right after we end this dramatic. one. If an alligator is not ripping off a zebra's face, then I don't know what's going on. Okay, see, you're, you're a real Eli Roth and I'm more of an Alfred Hitchcock. You know, I like the ticking Ooh, of the Oh, wow. What a cool guy. <laughs> Give me blood. <laughs> uh, you can okay. hear more from uh, Robin Barr's black metal band, Gimme Blood, <laughs> on Spotify. <laughs> no, my black metal band is called Queen of Acids. That is my fake band. Uh, my fake band is Nuclear Shotgun. So check so- it out. <laughs> What that's a Eli told, Roth movie. <laughs> nuclear I told shotgun. my fiance that I would have to bring this up on the pod. Um, so I was looking up octopus, and as okay. a uh, as a person does, because uh, I got this creepy ass uh, Halloween octopus that is just the skeleton of an octopus, which isn't an actual thing. <laughs> right? Since, you know, I think they're made out of cartilage or something. Yeah. Um. But uh, it's definitely like, you know, the the skeleton of an octopus, which is pretty cool. And then I was like, octopus. And I was like, what is what does that word mean? What is the root? Okay. Like octo is yeah. eight. What does puss mean? Yes. And so I <laughs> shut up, Robin. Up. <laughs> uh as you do and uh i found out what that means it does mean foot as i kind of figured uh but it also mentioned that octopi is incorrect that it should be octopuses so i give to you whatever that does for you Uh, this has been bill's linguistics corner (laughs) (laughs) 
I told her I would have to bring that up because I found that fascinating. This I have been, an argument. I was, I was always taught that it was octopi. This has been a gram of knowledge with is... Bill Graham. <laughs> for more, <laughs> for more bite-sized bits of knowledge, go to gramofknowledge.com. Okay, but I also argue that the cultural uh, significance of octopi has now superseded the correct quote unquote correct thing. And thus it is now the correct thing because grammar mm-hmm. and language constantly shifts. Right. How literally sure means figuratively does. now. Literally. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. No, literally. Yeah. That's literally what happened. Um, like literally. Perfect. Perfect. I forget. Bill, have you plugged any of your stuff yet? <laughs> uh, no, uh, okay. you can find me on cable or, uh, on Twitter at cable BFG. And you can also find me on Instagram at Billstagram. I think, uh, my fiance is probably posting a photo of our front, uh, cause we just decorated it for Halloween today. Uh, so there will be the skeleton octo, octopuses. Oct- no, wait, no. The, <laughs> Octopi. The single. No. Octopus. Uh, there is octopus. an octopus. Yeah, it's just an octopus. <laughs> I am um, speaking a, a of fantastical octopus. <laughs> I don't know. I think it was just Bill talking about receiving something. Um, I received a gift. I think to my house, something was sent to me that was addressed to me with my name spelled slightly incorrectly. Um, <laughs> it was it was purchased on Amazon. It was uh-huh. delivered to me, and it was rather expensive. And I checked all my bank accounts and all my credit cards, and none of my own financial information was used to make this purchase. <laughs> if you are a listener who bought me a gift, <laughs> please reach out to me because it's been like five weeks and I still haven't been able to figure out who sent me this thing. I'm not going to say what it is. Not because are it's you bad. sure it wasn't just like those gifts from China? They want you to just. It's like a thing that's been happening. Is everything- No, Except- because I, I looked that up because I was like, oh, this must be like that thing with that robe. Because I read like an article that was basically like, I got a robe and I didn't know where it was from. And it was like, yeah, it was mm-hmm. a cheap ass thing from China. And they just wanted to get a, a verified review. No, I looked up what this thing was. It is from a very reputable American company that sells their products at a premium. And... In speaking with Amazon, who would not relinquish the financial information of the person who got this for me, they confirmed that the whole, like the retail price, was indeed paid in full for this item. Interesting. And it is a cost that I cannot imagine a Chinese bot would pay just to get a feature review for, again, a rather well known American company that makes a lot of and is very highly thought of for the things they make, which one of which was sent to me. What is it, L.L. Bean? I, you know what? We'll talk more. But again, if right. you send it, like, reach out, tell me what you bought me, and I can say thank you because I am deeply confused and I would like to not be confused anymore. Anyway, Robin Barr, where can people find your work online? Uh, you can find me at R-O-B-Y-N-B-A-H-R on Twitter. And uh, I sometimes write for The Hollywood Reporter. I just wrote a review of Birds of Paradise, which is on Amazon, and you can read my review at thehollywoodreporter.com. Awesome. Um, as for me, I can be found at my uh, newly redesigned personal site, brianjerowen.com. Um, you can also find my stuff at thefilmstage.com, all of my writing in every episode of this year podcast. 
Um, as I've said, this October is going to be crazy because my distillery is going to be hitting a bunch of festivals all over the uh, the Maryland, Virginia, and D.C. area. So go to schmidtspirits.com slash events to learn where you can find me pouring samples of the liquor that I make so that you can enjoy it and purchase a bottle from us to help us stave off COVID-related bankruptcy. <laughs> Um, also, it would really just be awesome to see people who uh, know me and like me on here and who can have another reason to like me by sampling the whiskey that I make. Anyway, that's it. Uh, join us next week when we talk about the many saints of Newark. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us and tune in next time. Hey.